Thank you, Devin. As you came in this morning, did any of you get nervous as you looked at the outline? Just how much is in there? Saying, uh, is, this, is, this, is this possible? Is this doable? And after the first service, I can tell you it's not possible. It's not doable. So we'll, uh, I, I spent the time between the services trying to edit some things. So I was thinking right before I came up, you know, I didn't even put a tie on. I had a tie and I was going to put it on. But, but hopefully this will be better for you because I changed some things. And hopefully it will be clearer than maybe as I was sharing in the first service. But for that to happen, we'll need God's help. So let's look to him in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the trust that we can have in a God that's sovereign, that has everything uh, under his control, and this world is in his hands. And Father, we pray that you might allow us to reflect upon those things that are most important this day as we uh, finish up our series in the New Testament, and particularly as we look at this uh, powerful book that ends uh, your revelation to us, the book of Revelation. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Revelation, if you were to put a handle on it with a title. You could give it a four-word title, Promises Kept, God Wins. If you want to reduce that title or that handle for the book of Revelation, you could put it in these words, Jesus is victorious. As you think about the revelation of God to us throughout its entire uh, record to us, both the Old Testament and New Testament, it really is all about Jesus. Some more obvious uh, in terms of his description than others, but it's really all about Jesus. And as we think about it, we're, we're in a battle of life. And as we think about this battle of life, we need to recognize who really wins. And it's going to be Jesus. Jesus is victorious. But what I want to do to begin with is give somewhat again of an overview of all of God's message to us, and I'll try not to spend as much time on it as I did in the first service, which really got me in trouble. But, but let's, let's look again about God's message to us. We need to understand that as we, we, we try to embrace life, life it ultimately and fundamentally is not about us. If we were to put a picture up here, and I told you every one of you are in this picture, probably the first person you would look at would be what? Or who? Yourself. And maybe, maybe because you think you're so beautiful or maybe you're so afraid you're going to look so ugly in this picture, whatever it might be, but you would be concerned about how you look. But we need to understand that as we go through life, it's not how we look, but really it's how God looks. And we need to understand that our role in life is to give or to manifest who he is, his glory, and show to the world how great he is and how great he looks because how beautiful he is. So the revelation of scripture is all about God. It's God's story. It begins with creation. And then we mess up his creation with the fall. We mess up our relationship with God because we rebel against him. And then from basically Genesis 3 on, you have the story of redemption, which is God drawing people to himself. The majority of God's record to us is his variety of ways of bringing ourselves into relationship to him. And it culminates in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there isn't a period after Easter. There's life that continues. And the fourth chapter in God's revelation is restoration. It's basically paradise revisited. It's going back to God's original plan before we, we mess it up with the fall or our sin that brought into our experience rebellion against Him. Now, as you look at the Revelation, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is promises made, and the New Testament is promises kept. And as we look at the last book in the New Testament, Revelation, it, above all other books, is about the keeping of promises by God Almighty. 
In fact, there's probably at least 250 Old Testament allusions in this book. And so it really is a promises-kept book. If you look at the very first book that God gives us, the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis is about the beginning. In fact, the word Genesis means beginnings. What's Revelation? Uh, I've gone back and forth what word to put in this. It's really about the consummation. It's God's plan being fully played out. It's, It's the consummation of what he intended to happen. You could also say it's the end, but if you call it the end, it's really it's the end plus what happens next because there isn't even a period after the last verse in the book of Revelation because life continues. I don't know if this is te- technically correct. I should have probably asked um, uh, Jeannie Williams before I got up here, but it's almost like not the end but an epilogue. You know, sometimes epilogues, you have the end and then there's an epilogue and it's kind of like the, the ongoing story. That's what Revelation is. It's the end of... History as we know it, but it's not the end as history as God has laid it out. So there's an epilogue after this world comes to an end. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So the revelation, what is the revelation? In fact, if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to it. We'll be looking at some, just a couple references in your outline. But it is, um, it is a book in which the title is the first line in the book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the word revelation is an interesting word. It's a word from which you might have heard some other things related to some familiar passages in the book of Revelation. It's the word apocalypse. You've all heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So what does the word apocalypse mean? Well, it's revelation, but that doesn't really help us out a whole lot. Really, apocalypse or revelation literally can be translated the uncovering or unveiling. It's like we have a statue up here of Jesus and it's covered by a curtain, and we're going to bring down the curtain and show you who Jesus really looks like and who he really is. Now, we've had a fairly big book telling us about who he is, but Revelation unveils him in a fuller way. In fact, the unveiling really speaks about that which was hidden or partially put in shadows and now brought to the light. And we're going to see Jesus in a fuller way than we've ever seen him before. So that's the intro. Now, intro. Now, now let's look at our run or race through Revelation. And beginning with the first chapter, it's always good to begin at the beginning. What's the promise of the book of Revelation? Uh, chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed or happy is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so God tells us right at the beginning of this, this book which is so hard to read. Anybody think this book is kind of hard to understand? Okay, We've got more hard to understand than we have angel fans in here, all right? Is that this book is rather difficult, but he puts a blessing to it. So I think it's safe to say you don't have to understand everything about this book to get a blessing from it. So we want to get the main ideas, and I'm going to try to give you a few particulars as well. The particulars are where there's the debate. And I'm going to tell you... Basically what I believe, but I'm not going to tell you because of time why I believe all that I believe about the book of Revelation. But there is a blessing here, and I think the blessing is if we begin to see Jesus again fully as he is. He is the victorious one. That in the end, he wins, and if we're on his team, we win. And I don't know about you, but that's a blessing. Whenever I'm in competition, I'd much rather win than then lose in about most important competitions than I really want to win. That's the blessing. So if you fall asleep now, 
you can leave saying, what was it all about? It's about God wins, Jesus wins, and if we're on his team, we win. And that's the blessing. Well, how do, how do you get a handle on this complicated and not particularly small book? It's not like the book of Jude or the book of first, second and third John, which are little postcards. This is a longer letter. Well, you, could, you can divide it in not a, an even thirds, but in three ways. And that's kind of given us in terms of biblical outline in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Look at it as I read. Write, he's speaking to John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So, if we wanted to use a somewhat inspired outline, this would be the outline of the book. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place. Does that sound like a fairly good way to kind of outline this book? Because that's what John was writing. So let's look at it that way. Now, it's not evenly distributed, but that's, that's, the, that's the points that he is conveying from the angel and the, and the vision and Jesus himself uh, to John and to us as well. I, I didn't mention this already, but the, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ from and about Jesus Christ. He's the source of the material, and he's the subject matter of the material in the book of Revelation, with a few details thrown in. All right, here we go. Number one, the things which you have seen. That's primarily recorded, in fact, it is recorded in, G, in Revelation chapter 1. And what it is, is an unveiling or a picture of Jesus in his second coming, different from his fill-in-the-blank first coming. All right? When Jesus came the first time, we sing about him and think about him as the one who was meek and mild or lowly, right? We even sang about that already today. That's not how he's coming back. And that's not essentially all that he is. He's not simply the baby in the manger. Let's look at a couple verses there. Look at, or to put it this way in your outline, we're going to see a vision of the exalted Christ. Not the lowly one, not the servant, not the one who was to be the sacrifice for our sins. We're, we're seeing the one who's coming to win and bring judgment to this land. And, and look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Some of you are already turning, but as you're turning, the, the, the vision he saw of Jesus in the first chapter, you can see it in a few verses. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Same idea, verse 19, he kind of repletes this as far as part of the vision. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I, John speaking, saw him, I fell at his feet, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last." I am he who lives and who is dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, we're not going to dissect that, but however you take that, it's pictured of Jesus. There's not a literal two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, but he's saying, I am coming in judgment. I am coming not to rescue now, but to, to bring God's wrath here on earth. So we see a, an unveiling, a picture of Jesus as the powerful one, the one who is authoritative. In other words, he has the right to rule. He has authority, and he's the one who is almighty. He has the power to rule as well. Point number one, the things you have seen. Seeing Jesus as the exalted Christ. 
Now how about the things that are? And what we have here in chapters 2 and 3, you have John being instructed to give messages to seven churches. They're called lampstands, and that sounds like a pretty good picture for churches. We are to give light. And he's to give it to the seven stars that are in the church. And it's also later on that picture is, is defined, and the seven stars are the seven angels of the church. And I've mentioned to you before, the word angel, if you were to translate the word angel, it's the word angelos in the, in the Greek, simply means messenger. And so as, as John gives the messages from God to the churches, to the seven stars, to the seven angels, he's writing to seven messengers to the church. Now, there are two types of messengers. There are, there are heavenly messengers and there are earthly messengers. If these are earthly messengers here, they're probably the pastors to the churches. Here's the message I want you to preach next Sunday at your church. And he gives them a message to each one of the churches. I said it before. Some of you people, you don't know how to, you don't you say, how do you want me to call you? And I really don't care how you call me. You can call me Mike. Some people call me Pastor Mike. Or if you want to be really biblical, you can call me Angel Mike. You know, I'm an angel. Um, also reference here to a star. You can call me a star either a shooting star or a falling star, or, or you can call me a messenger boy, because that's basically what a pastor is, simply a messenger boy who gives God's truth to his church. Now, in here we have seven churches, and this is point number two, and you'll already turn there, is what are the things that are? It's messages to churches that were real churches then, and you can go there. I've had opportunity to go to Turkey a couple times, and you can see the, the ge- geographical or the archaeological uh, remains of those churches. They were real churches, but they're also representative churches. Because, you know, after the first century, the life that God was, in, was imparting into the life of people did not end at the destruction of Jerusalem. It continued on. And, and it can continue on after that first century. And so these are messages like the rest of the New Testament to the people not only then, but today as well. And, and really what he does, he describes the types of churches that were then and the types of churches that are now. And five of them have, have more warnings than, than praise, and two of them have only praise. And somehow we can see us collectively, but maybe more applicable today, more personally, as we see what kind of follower of Christ am I? Uh, just listing them. The, the first one, the heartless church. That was the church at Ephesus. That was the church, remember what he said in, in, in Revelation 2.4, you have lost your first love. That's when we do things from cold orthodoxy or indifference, and we're going through the motions, but it's not a passion of our life. Uh, then the next church, it was the, the courageous church. This is a, a church that had courage even in the midst of, of circumstances where they should be running because they were a suffering church. Look at Revelation 2.10, I have it in your outline. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And as we think of the duration, we ought to be faithful. We ought to be faithful until the very end. And then he says to them, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I just want to stop for a moment here. We're not going to have time to look at each one of the churches other than really naming them. But sometimes as we think about living out the Christian life, we, we either were too tired or we're, or we're too fearful to, to speak for God and to identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. And maybe it's because of the, the responses we'll get back. And that was happening to them. They were a suffering church. 
but he told them to be fearless, not in the absence of that which was worthy to be fearful about, but in the midst of whatever God calls you to, be courageous. But you might be like a lot of us saying, well, I'm just not that kind of person. I'm not just naturally courageous. I'm kind of timid in nature. How do you become a person who is courageous or a person who can overcome? Well, look at what he says at the end of this message to the church there. He overcomes that shall not be hurt by the second death, which simply has the idea we're all going to die until Jesus, unless Jesus comes in our lifetime and we'll have a physical death, but you won't have to be fearful of the spiritual death, being separated from him forever. But who is the one who overcomes? Well, 1 John 5, 5 tells us, who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You don't have to be a person of great faith, but you have to be a person who has faith in a great God. And if that is true, you can be courageous even in the midst of fearful things. The things which are, those were were messages to the heartless church, the courageous church. Uh, Thirdly, the compromising church. That was the church at Pergamos. The deceived church. Then a real sobering message to uh, the dying church. This is a person who said, you, you look like you're alive, but you really have no life within you. And there's only a few of you left who haven't really departed from the faith. Uh, the persevering church, and then letter G, the false church. The false church, what a, what a sobering word from Jesus himself. You are so lukewarm, I, I, just, I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. I would never want Jesus to describe me in that way in terms of relationship to him. And I think that's the false church who might name the name of Christ but has no experience with him. But the part of the revelation which most of us are wondering about is is from chapters 4 on. We saw the things which he had seen, the exalted Christ. We, We saw the things which are for him at that day, which was the seven historical churches that represented churches then and today. And there's messages for us not to be heartless, not to be compromising, not to be dying, not to be false, but to be persevering and, and courageous. But what, what happens next? Well, that's, that's what God gave John a glimpse into. What's next in God's program? It's the things which will take place after this. Now, it's interesting in God's message to John. In the first three chapters, we have the church prominence. You're hearing messages of the church. You have references and, and word pictures to the church. They're, they're lampstands. But then from chapters 4 through 18, there is no reference to the church at all on earth. And do you know why that is so? Uh, now, there are people who have different views in the book of Revelation, but my conviction is the reason there's no mention of the church at all in chapters 4 through 18, though it's, it's, heard, it's written about all the time in chapters 1 through 3, is because the church is not there. And if the church is not there, you ask yourself the question, well, where is it? Well, if it's not on earth, it's probably where? It's in heaven. And, and so what we have in chapters 4 through 18, we have a picture of what's happening in heaven as well as what's happening on earth and who is involved in these two programs and in the people who are in various des- destinations. So as we look at that, we're going to look at four things. It probably could have put, been put a little bit differently in your outline. But we're going to look in chapters uh, 4 uh, through 18, um, what's happening in heaven. and on, we're going to, Well, in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to look at uh, the, uh, worship in heaven, where the church is. 
And then in chapters 6 through 18, we're going to look at that period of time, which is the, the tribulation or the great tribulation. And then in chapter 19, we're going to look at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 20, we're going to look at what's called the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we're going to look at the eternal state of the new heaven and earth. And we'll catch that up as we go the flow. All right, you guys ready? All right, we're we're dumping a lot of stuff on you, but remember, if, if you want to go to sleep, it's all about Jesus is victorious. Promises kept, God wins, and uh, we can be blessed because we know God's got everything under control. But if you want a little bit of detail, which I believe is what's going to be played out, this is what happens. We have a picture of the church in heaven. And let's look at Revelation chapter 4 for a moment. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. What's after this? After the church is no longer here. And really, some people ask, where's the rapture in the book of Revelation? It's between chapter 3 and chapter 4, where the church was here, and now it's no longer here. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 17, where God, again, unveiled, uncovered that which was hidden and now makes clear now is there's going to come a point in time where God suddenly will draw up those who are followers of Jesus Christ and place them in heaven. It's the catching up or the rapture of the church. We have no idea when that can happen. It could happen at any moment. And the reason God wants that to happen is because God has not destined his followers for his wrath. Now, we experience suffering in this world. We're not in it to escapism. We're not trying to escape our, our responsibilities in this world. God has get, given us a game plan. We ought to be his witnesses and ambassadors. But there's going to come a time where God will catch up his followers because they are not destined for his wrath, and he's going to rescue us just like he did Noah from the floods in the ark that he built, just like Lot got out of Sodom and Gomorrah because he, he was not destined for God's wrath. We can get experience all kinds of God's judgment, but not his wrath, and we're now caught up in heaven. Now, when we're in heaven, what will we be doing? Look at verse 8, no, verse 10. There'll be 24 elders, and they'll fall down before him who sits on the throne, and that's God himself, and, and worships him who lives forever and ever and casts their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What's the church doing in heaven? Just what the church ought to be doing here on earth. We ought to be worshiping God. We ought to be praising God. And we'll be doing that. Now, there are other ways to worship God other than singing, but we'll be doing a lot of singing, expressing our praise to God when we get to heaven. As as a a number of uh, preachers have said, that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be out of a job, but anybody who leads worship still has stuff to do, all right? Because we'll know all things. So, as we think about chapter 4, the church is in heaven as we worship in heaven. Chapter 5 gives us another clue what's happening in heaven that portrays what's going to soon happen here on earth. And look at Revelation chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open up the scroll or to look at it. Now, when you get a piece of mail in the mailbox, I know we're now in the electronic world, but let's, let's go to the snail mail, and it has your name on it, who should open it? Only you. 
Well, there's a scroll in heaven, and there's only one wor- person worthy to open it, and they can't find that person. In fact, they're wondering, who, should, who, can, who is worthy to open it? Well, the only one is Jesus. And Jesus, and this again, the picture of Jesus in the Revelation, he's not only the Lamb of God, but he's the Lion of Judah. And what he does is he, he takes this scroll, and this picture is what I believe, the title deed for the earth. As we think about the victory that was won, the victory was won on the cross, and he rose from the dead. But as we think about Jesus, even as we think about Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we talk about Jesus as is mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. And it says the government will rest upon his shoulders. Let me ask you, is the government resting upon his shoulders now? I don't care who you're voting for, all right? The government's not resting upon the shoulders of God. And, but it's going to happen. But it's going to happen in the future. And what's going to happen is that God will now take that which is rightfully his. And it's like having something valuable in your safe that you haven't you know, cashed in yet. Well, he hasn't cashed it in yet, but now he's going to cash it in. And so you begin to unroll the the seals to this legal document, which is the legal deed for this earth. Now, what happens, however, is there's someone here on this earth who doesn't really want to give it back freely. And so God says, okay, if you don't want to give it, even though it's rightfully mine, I have not only the authority, but I have the power. I'm Almighty God, and I will take it from you. And so as he unbreaks the seals here, he's unbreaking the ways he's going to retrieve that which is rightfully his. I remember when I first read about the seal judgments of God, I was thinking of some you know, animal seal, you know, those things that float in the water, you know, you're out in the ocean. No, this is the seals of this document. It just pictures it opening up the rightfully uh, um, possessor of this land. And then we go back, we're in heaven in chapters 4 through 5, now in chapters 6 through 18, we're now going to go now on earth. So at times we'll kind of go back into heaven, kind of see what's happening there while things are happening here on earth. Chapter 6 begins that period called the Tribulation. Now, my understanding of Revelation, both Old and New Testament, there's going to be a seven-year period of time in in which, after the church is caught up, uh, there will be a period of time where God brings all these things into fruition concerning His eternal plan, which is He will now take control of this earth fully and completely. And He will do it, a period called the Great Tribulation, which is divided in two periods of time, Three and a half years of relative peace, and then another three and a half uh, period in which all hell will break loose. And it begins with peace, which is interesting. Looking at the 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 the, the story played out in this book of Revelation, it begins with sealed judgments. And interesting that the deceiver or the antichrist begins with peace. Look at Revelation six, beginning of verse one. Now, when I when, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a, a, a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Interesting, if you were to go to war and you were to conquer and you were to bring a bow, what probably would you also bring with you? Arrows, because it's like having a gun with no bullets. I mean, it might intimidate people at first, but when they find out you have nothing to shoot, out of that gun, they're not going to be a whole lot of terror um, response. Well, what happens is the Antichrist, and he comes winning a war with no casualties. Um, I haven't had opportunity or taken the opportunity to, to listen to too many of the presidential debates or the, or the can, uh, candidates for president debates, but I had a chance to listen to some of them last night. And 
it's interesting, in the midst of all that's going on in our country, the Middle East was still part of the questioning process. If we could have someone solve our world problems, and particularly at the height of most of the volatility in the world today is a little place in the Middle East called Israel, people would flood to that person as a world leader. That's going to happen. And the one world government that we could so easily... We have a one world economy now. I mean, not completely, but it's, it's all tied together. It's, it's going to happen in, in much grander ways when the deceiver, the antichrist... Uh, the beast comes, and first of all, everybody thinks he's going to be the hero to this world. But it doesn't last forever. And so the rest of the sealed judgments play that out. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, the first one was a, a person riding on a white horse, but that, that horse changes pretty quickly. Verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And so then the Antichrist begins to break his pact, which he made with Israel, and war breaks out, and now he controls by power and might. And so what we see here is, and God uses not only his, his, his hand, but also indirect hands to play out what's going to happen in terms of God bringing everything right that is wrong. There's a third seal, there's, there's famine, there's a fourth seal, this widespread death, the fifth seal, there's the response of people in the land to this terror. There's cosmic disturbances, which basically means that all, all, all the heavens will be moving around as acts of God are manifested in the, in the heavens and on earth to the point where people realize that they are not in control, which is really the message of the Scripture. It's God's story. We think we, we can control everything. We can control very few things in this earth and probably ultimately nothing on this earth. And when things happen by Mother Nature, and there is no Mother Nature, there's, a, there's an eternal Father, of, of, a creator of all things, we recognize that we can't control what happens here. And all of a sudden, people begin to be filled with fear. But still, they don't turn to Him. Now, now this, let me say this now. As you look at this, we're not going to have a whole lot more time. But there are three types of judgments during this period of tribulation. There's the seal judgments, there's the trumpet judgments, and there's the bowl judgments. And the reason they're called, you know, trumpet and bowl, trumpet, you know, the loud sounding of God's message, the bowl pouring out of God's wrath. I, I really believe that in the first um, seven seals, you have basically the, the panoramic view of all the tribulation. And then within the seventh seal, the trumpet judgments give you more detail what happens in that last period of time in the Great Tribulation, and then the seven bowls give you more detail about what happens when all the, the horrific part of God's wrath is poured out on the earth. And in the meantime, you, you get some backstory. You get some things, some individuals that, that, are, that, are, that arrive on the scene that show you uh, what's, what's happening in the lives of people and how is God um, rescuing people who weren't saved before the Tribulation but become saved during the period of Tribulation. Chapter 7 is, is part of that. And here's where we're going to be going uh, with a lot of detail. After the seal judgment in chapter 6, uh, we have the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are secured. Basically, God gathers out of the, out of the tribes of Israel 144,000 little apostle Pauls who will be going everywhere, and they'll be secure and safe during this period where uh, the, the enemy, the Antichrist, is, is spreading evil around the world, and God's wrath is poured out, but they'll be preserved. In chapter 8, we have the response in heaven to what's happening on earth. 
And just a little about what we've heard, we're all going, this is, this is, this is, this is way, way too much. This is, I, I can't, I can't. And, and that's what happens. Look at Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the, the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, some people have said that because of this, they doubt whether there's any women in heaven because, you know, a half an hour of silence. I don't think that's the point here, but the thing is, when it's, when it's, when you're so shocked, you're left, what? Speechless. And we haven't even read the detailed description of these judgments. And even in heaven, they're just, God, that your wrath is being poured out. And the cry for centuries where people said, God, when are you going to deal with evil and sin in the world? And now that you're dealing with it, it's just overwhelming. And then detail begins to be played out. Now the trumpet judgments, another description of what's going to happen during the, this period called the big trouble or the, the tribulation time. Chapter 9, some specific things where God uses the hand of the evil one to, to release. He gives them the, the, the keys to Hades. And death, and he releases demonic forces that have been judged by God in the past and put in the deepest, darkest parts of hell. And, and they're re- released, and they're called like scorpions that will, that will sting and torture people for months on end. So much so that people will cry out, desiring to die, but somehow I guess they cannot die. Chapter 10. You have another, again, a picture of... Well, What's, what's, the, what's the reason we're doing this? And there's a picture of a, of a little book. Now, my take on this little book, it's like the, the scroll that was open. It might even be the same, same scroll, but now just rewrapped. Or... And what it is, is again, it's a, it's a title deed. There's another copy of the deed. And there's an angel has an, an angel has a, a foot on the seas and a foot on land saying, look... God owns it all. And John is told to take this book and to eat it. And the picture is that, that once he eats it, he, it's both bitter and it's sweet. And, and really, that's what the book of Revelation is. It's, it's a book that's both bitter and it's sweet. It, it's bitter to those who won't respond to the message of Jesus Christ and, and put their faith and confidence in him. But it's sweet to those who embrace him by faith. Chapter 11, we, we have two fascinating people that come on the scene. It's the two witnesses. And, and they're probably in the last three and a half years, and, and they're given sovereign power to be a, a witness for him and to be a, a just a, an irritating, uh, just mind-boggling person to, to the Antichrist. They, they, he just, they, the people who were rebelling against God, as these people preach for God. They don't want to hear the message and they're, they're trying to, to destroy them and God gives them power to overcome that. And then their life is taken. <laughs> but not for long. And three days, three and a half days later, they're, they're risen from the dead. See, even when we think that, God, that the evil in the world has power over God's people, ultimately they don't. And it's pictured in those two witnesses. In chapter 12, we have, we have some pictures there of, of how God uniquely has has been faithful to his covenant people, Israel. The woman, it's, Israel is portrayed as the woman, and then we have the child, and then we have the dragon as the serpent, the evil one. And it says that the serpent 
is always trying to get to Israel and then particularly to kill her child, the one who came. But he was unable to do so. And it doesn't take an authority on the story of Christmas to remember that when Jesus came, the evil one's plan was to, to somehow kill that child in the manger. So much so that Herod destroyed thousands and thousands of little children just in case he make, to make sure he could kill that little child in the manger. Chapter 13. We have the Antichrist described as the beast, and he has a, he has a partner in, in crime, the false prophet. And then we have the number of the beast, the number 666. And unless you take the, the name that he will give you, you will not have anything to eat. Chapter 14. God compares the evil one's mark to his mark. And God's mark lasts forever on the 144,000 and his mark is secured. Chapter 15, we again have what's happening in heaven during the response of all the evil that's happening on earth. There's a song of worship in heaven. Chapter 16. The bold judgments express the wrath of God. So much so, again, that people are running and trying to hide from God. Chapter 17, you have the world's false religions centered in Rome, and they're, dest- they're destroyed. Karl Marx said that the opiate of the people is religion. And, and the Antichrist initially controls people by their religion, but it's a false religion. Chapter 18, the other way to control people is with their pocketbook, the money. And the world's economy centered in Rome, Babylon, is destroyed. And so now the nations of the world, the people of the world that are rebelling against God, now they gather together. And now we have the point in which the final rebellion on this side of history is made toward God. And that's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not having time to read that section, basically you have Jesus presented as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But even then, it's, it's not the end, it's only the beginning of the end. Because God wants to authenticate His righteousness and His holiness. And there's going to be a, a period of time on earth, what's called the millennium, or a thousand year reign, in which Jesus will be here on earth. But even in optimum com- conditions, and even with the serpent, the evil one, chain, and so it's not the temptation of the evil one that brings people to rebellion against God, that will be a period of time after a thousand years in which Satan will be released, and there will be one final battle, and all those who rebel against God will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And then finally, in chapter 21 and 22, we have the epilogue, the final epilogue, which the new heavens and the new earth descend down. And there will be a place where there is no tears. There will be no mourning. There will only be life filled to its fullest. So what's the point this morning? The point this morning is is that that God keeps His promises. Now sometimes we, we want the promises kept that only describe His blessing. But God also keeps his promises of judgment. And just like that little book that was consumed by the prophet John in symbolic way to picture what was happening, it's both bitter and it's sweet. And the challenge for us is to, to heed the words of 
The last chapter of the last book, Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. He can come at any time. Blessed or happy is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And, and what's, the, what's the simple challenge for us? The simple challenge is, are we ready to meet Jesus? It's one thing to may arrive at the manger scene and, and see this beautiful baby and, and just marvel at life and, and Jesus coming as the one to, to rescue us and to be the Savior of this world. But for it to dig deep into our heart, we need to recognize that Jesus is not only the Savior of this world, but He's the judge of this world. And if we only give lip service to the good news and and not be aware that the judgment news of God is upon those who pose to be a Christian but not truly a follower of His, then we've missed the message. Paul put it this way, Examine yourself to see whether you're really in the faith. We want to be recipients of His love and grace and mercy. And we want to escape the wrath of His holy hand. Let's pray. Father, each of us needs to come to that point in our life where we recognize where do we stand before God that has unveiled himself. There is no clearer way than to to come and invade history and and be a man and to walk the paths of this earth, to teach like no one else has taught, to to do that which no one else has done, and then to go to a cross and to die on behalf of everyone who has sinned and then rise from the dead. And Father, you you invite everyone to come, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Just come to me, the source of all forgiveness. But the other side of the message is clear as well. If, If we reject so clear an invitation and decide to live for ourselves or to to be a poser in spiritual things, then the wrath of God will come upon us and all those who reject the one who came for us. Father, anyone here this morning that hasn't made that step, might they just in the humbleness of their hearts say, Dear Lord Jesus, I do want to know you. I do want to follow you. I want to embrace you with my faith and my life. I want to do all that you've called me to do and to be. I believe that when you died for me, you died for all my sins. Come to my life right now. Amen. As we conclude our time together,